My name is Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together this morning. Uh, just a little heads up, as Jenny Lynn warned you, um, we are having our picnic not next Sunday, but the following Sunday. And the reason we scheduled that initially was because of the retreat. We always have our church retreat at that weekend. But because we, uh, we decided to cancel it again for the second year in a row, we want to at least get together as a whole church family and have a great picnic with good food and whatnot. But providentially, not only was it kind of the placeholder for our retreat, but that is going to be Jenny Lynn's last Sunday uh, before she leaves for another, no, just kidding, <laughs> before her sabbatical. <laughs> she hates me for that. So she's going to be taking her three-month sabbatical, and uh, we want to be able to send her off not only on that last Sunday service, but also at the picnic. So that'll be the last opportunity we as a church have to have that final connection and, and bid her farewell before she comes back in January. So please mark that. I think it's not only important for us to get together, but also it has more significance as she leaves and gets some rest from all the craziness of ministry and, and be able to maybe focus in on some other things alongside her book as well. So uh, with that, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible app, we have Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. So grab that if you don't have one, and you could turn to page 232, 232 in the Pew Bibles or the Church Bibles that you can use. And if you don't have a Bible, that's yours to take. We'd love to give that to you if you're interested in the Christian faith and want to know more about this Jesus and the gospel that we believe in. But uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 27. Now, just to kind of get us up to speed on where we are, if maybe this is your first time here, or if you've been coming for a while and obviously you forgot where we are, um, we've been looking at 1 Samuel this fall and looking at this theme of king of kings, that whether Israel had a king or not, a human king, Jesus was always going to be their faithful king. Now, the last few weeks, what we've come across, what we've come to is the people of God want a human king. And their desire for a human king wasn't the issue. Their issue was that they were rejecting God as their king. And that was at the, at the core of the problem. They were rejecting God as king, not so much that they wanted a human king. And so last week, as Pastor John preached, we saw this really random sort of random events take place where Saul is looking for donkeys for his dad. But through that experience, we see Saul become Israel's first king. And it's this private ceremony where Samuel the prophet anoints Saul as Israel's first king. What we're going to see today, though, is that he is publicly anointed king of Israel. In the words of Frozen, it's coronation day, right? See, the first service didn't give me one single laugh. I like you guys better. So with that, let's pray, and we'll go to God's word this morning. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, that though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word lasts forever, stands forever. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, encourage our hearts for those that need encouragement, show us our blind spots for those that need to see their own sin and their own brokenness and fallenness, 
And for others, Lord, wherever we are at, Holy Spirit, do some good work this morning so that your word would come alive in our hearts this morning. We lift this time up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we go into this story or this coronation day, let me ask you a question. What would you do or how would you react if someone rejected you that was close to you? How would you react if someone close to you hurt you in a way that was profoundly deep and painful? Here in today's story that we're going to look at, we see deep rejection by God's people to God. And how does God respond? That's the question we're looking at this morning. How does God respond to our, our rejection of Him? Whatever, however way you might humanly respond, we see God react completely different. And here's the big takeaway this morning as we dive into this story. It's that when we reject God, God, God's grace abounds. And we're going to see in what ways God's grace abounds to us even when we reject Him. Even when we turn and rebel against Him, God's grace abounds to His people continually and always. And so we're going to see that in this story in three ways, in these three chunks of the story. So we'll just kind of read the story and as it goes, we'll take... We'll take moments to pause and see how God's grace abounds when we reject Him, and specifically how Israel rejected Him, and yet God's grace abounds. So follow along with me. We're going to start in verse 17 and kind of go through this story bit by bit. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Now, pause there for a moment. And the first way we see and how God's grace abounds for us, even when we reject Him, is that we see His tender patience. His tender patience. Now, for us who've been kind of following along in this narrative through 1 Samuel, we read immediately that Samuel gathers the Israelites together where? In Mitzpah. Now, if we recall chapter 7, what happened at Mitzpah? That was a very significant moment. At Mitzpah was where Samuel gathered all God's people, just like this passage, and he preaches God's words. And how do the people of God respond? They repent. They turn from their ways, and they build this Ebenezer stone, this remembrance that reminds them thus far God has helped them. And they are restored and renewed in their love for God. But here, what happens? Samuel gathers God's people. He preaches God's word. And do they repent? No. Instead, they say, give us a king. And, and Samuel delivers God's word. And what does God's word tell his people? Well, first, God has saved them. It, remi it reminds them of God's character, right? 
Verse 18, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. He's reminding them, in my history with you, I have saved you. You were in the land of Egypt as slaves. You were under the oppression of Pharaoh, and I delivered you out of, Israel, or out of Egypt. So he's reminding them of God's character, but then second, what does he do? He says, but today, in verse 19, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. You see, God's word does two things. It reminds us of God's character. He has freed us from our bondage, from our slavery. But secondly, it points back to us, right? James 1, or James 2, James 1 reminds us of that. That the word of God not only tells us everything about who God is and the story of, this, of the world, but also of a mirror that looks back into our own souls. And we realize we are broken, fallen people who need saving and redeeming. And that's what God does. As, he, as Samuel preaches God's word, he says, Today you have rejected me. And you have said you want a king. Now, Dale Dave, Ralph Davis, who's a commentator or, or a scholar, when he talked about this passage, what he said was his word, God's word, may pursue us relentlessly until we hear it. In other words, how we see God's tender patience is through his word. When we reject him over and over and over again, when we rebel against him, when we sin against him, when we choose other idols that we find more significance in, in our identity, than God alone. God gives us his word as an act of his grace and mercy to us. And that's what we see here. He pursues us relentlessly until we hear it, and not only hear it, but believe it. And right now, these Israelites just continue to reject God, but God in his slow to anger, abounding in love character, uses his own words to pursue them gently. The other way that we see his tender patience as his grace abounds for his people is look at this last part of verse 19. So he says, this is who I am, I have freed you. And then he says, but you have rejected me. Like, you have turned your back against me. Now therefore, right? Read there in the latter half of verse 19. Now therefore, what do you think God should say? He should say, now therefore, I'm done with you. I reject you. I will abandon you and have nothing to do with you anymore. You are on your own, right? I mean, logically, that is what God would say to his people. But that's not. What does he say instead? He says, Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and thousands. And what he's doing is he's gathering all of God's people to give them what they want. To give them the king that they asked for, even though they're rejecting God. You see, this is God's tender patience. He is so slow to anger. He is thinking about the long game. He doesn't just go after our behavior, right? I mean, like many of our parents that we have, or you as a parent, what do you do when someone, your kids do something wrong? You, you address their behavior many times. Stop doing that. So now you're going to receive some consequences for what you've done. But God goes after our hearts. In many ways, when we think about parenting, it's about going after their hearts. And, Jesus, and God does the same here. 
I mean, spoiler alert, Saul is going to disappoint the Israelites as their king. David is going to disappoint them as their king. Solomon is going to disappoint them. Every king from Saul on disappoints them. And what God is doing is he's slow to anger and he's tender and patient so that at the core, he wants to say, you will experience disappointment. You will experience suffering. You experience hardship. You will become a slave to these kings. And through his slow grace and mercy and patience, He's willing to wait out the long game so that they might return back to him. That is the grace that abounds. Though we reject God, we see his grace, his loving kindness through his tender patience with us as he is with the Israelites. So he's gathered his people, right? He's gathered his people. Samuel has. God has actually. And now what happens? He's going to anoint Saul publicly as king. Let's read on here in verse 20. Follow along. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself from the baggage, which is actually military gear that Saul has hidden in. Verse 23, Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Saul has now not only been privately anointed as the king, first king of Israel, but now he's become publicly, in front of all the tribes of Israel, the king, Israel's first king. But what's fascinating about this story here is how is he chosen? He's chosen by lots. Now, we don't know the specificities of like how the lots work, but it was some sort of die system. And you would cast these dies to be able to say, okay, This eliminates so-and-so, and then this shows maybe this is the way God wants to work. Now, something so random and something that seems by chance Saul being chosen as king, actually we see God's constant provision for his people. And that's the second thing we see here in how God's grace abounds for us. It's God's constant provision for his people. You would think something like casting lots is so random. But yet God was providing for his people because in Proverbs 16.33 in the Old Testament, this is how lots are described. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You see, God uses even things that seem so ordinary, so mundane, so just blah, but he uses it. He's in the midst of it to be able to provide for his creation. And here we see God's provision for his people, even through the casting of lots, so that as they they continue to cast these lots, it windles down from 12 tribes to one tribe, to one family, to one man. And God has been the one providing, interceding, working, so that grace may abound in our lives, even though we choose to reject him. But the second way we see God's constant provision in this story is 
The cast have been lot, or the lot has been cast, and what happens? Okay, Saul is the man, but can they find him? No. Literally, it says in verse 21, Saul could not be found. Now, if you were here last week, that should almost be like a trigger for you. Because 12 times last week in the last week's passage, this phrase could not be found was used. And in today's story, you might just like kind of blow it off. But I think the writer, the storyteller, is actually tying it to last week's story, saying, just as Saul and his friends could not find the donkeys, here the people of God could not find their king. In other words, I think the point we find here is that Israel is no less successful in finding their own king than Saul and his servant finding some donkeys. The storyteller intends that we understand that actually getting the king, their first king, was God's work from start to finish. This is God's provision for us. That even when we reject him, he, in his grace and mercy, provides for us. Though it is a slap in the face, a rejection of God, in his love, in his grace, he provides for these Israelites something that was a complete rejection, an act of rebellion. And yet he provides. And this is what is so beautiful. Eugene Peterson said this, even though their agenda excludes God, God is silently, hiddenly there, sovereign in their agenda. It is not that easy to get rid of God. This is God's grace for us. We saw that last week. God works through and in people to be able to accomplish His purposes. And He provides for us because He loves us. And He is gracious to us. But there's a last thing we're going to see in this last portion, which seems so random and it makes no sense. But through this last portion of Saul or Samuel writing this book, we're going to see God's faithful king as his grace for us, even when we reject him. Here, read along in verse 25. Saul has been anointed king, and they shout, Long live the king. Well, what happens from here? Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gilbeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Now, there's this random description of Samuel taking this book and writing the rights and duties of the kingship. Now, what's that all about? As I did some digging and looking at this, it should harken back to chapter 8, two weeks ago. And if you recall, when the people of God first said, I want a king, we want a king, what does God do? He, God warns them what kings will do to you, Israel. And do you remember, what, does, what will kings do? Kings will take and take and take and take. They'll take your sons and daughters. They'll take all your crops and all your grain. They'll take all your livestock and all your donkeys and whatever cattle you have. And ultimately, you will become slaves 
to all the kings that you will have. This was God's warning of what the kingship would look like. But that's not what Samuel is writing in this book about what the rights and duties of the king are. Instead, what he was writing was what the king should be like. A king that will reflect Yahweh, God's character for his people. And it's actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. But listen to the description of what a king of Israel should have been like. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Now, think about that. Up to this point, this is exactly what we've read in 1 Samuel, right? They choose Saul. Now, one from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause a people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So, don't have too many horses, don't have too many wives, don't have too much silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. This is exactly what Samuel's doing. Approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue to continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Do you see that? In other words, the rights and duties that Samuel writes in this book is of what the king should be like. One that reflected God's character, who was humble, did not consider himself above his brothers or sisters, who was content in not having to build up this crazy nation full of horses and wealth and wives and concubines. You see, this book, these rights and duties, was a picture of what a faithful king should look like. But as I just said earlier, was that the case in Israel's history? No. I mean, Saul, next week we'll see what a, the beginnings of his downfall. David, who succeeds Saul, is a man after God's own heart, is, he's described that. And yet he murders, he sleeps with a married woman, his children end up being just notoriously horrible and wicked. You see Solomon with concubines, I mean, I mean he had so many, he had so much wealth, and what you see throughout the history of Israel are kings that do not represent the rights and duties that Samuel has written. A man who sits under God's word day and night and meditates on it. Who fears and loves God's word and his commandments. There is none in, his, in the history of Israel who represents this kind of king. But you see, when we reject God, 
the way in which His grace ultimately abounds in is with the true King of Kings a thousand years later through the line of David. His name is Jesus. It is through Jesus who represents everything that the rights and duties of this book described. A man who is humble, a God who would come down into this cosmos, God himself taking on human flesh who becomes perishable, who humbled himself, who had no place to lay his head, homeless, poor, with no wealth, the God who had everything under his fingertips, now had nothing, but worse, who lived the perfect life and yet died the death that he did not deserve, but rather we did. And when these men, as we read, asked, who can save us? Can this Saul actually save us? Well, no, but Jesus, could he save us? Yes, and yet what happens? He is rejected. He's despised. He's scorned. He's rebuked. And he dies at the hands of his creation who reject him. And yet what happens? Because of his profound love for us, he goes to the cross and dies and forgives us of our rejection of him and says, you are mine. If you put your faith in me, if you realize you cannot live the life that this book represents, and you put your faith in me and the one that did it perfectly, you can have life. And you see, this is why this truly points to the picture of the faithful king. When we reject him as we have, God continues to pursue us and his grace abounds more and more in our lives. That's the point here. Jesus is our true king. He is our amazing grace. And through his victory over death, he conquered all the enemies even the ultimate enemy, death itself, so that we will no longer have to live in fear of death. This is our king that we can worship, and yet we continue to reject him, but this is his grace for us. He offers himself, Jesus, that even as we come to the table with his body broken and his blood shed, he says, come to the feast, and you will experience grace. This is the beautiful picture of the gospel. So what do we do? Two things I want us to be able to reflect on. First, when's the last time you marveled at this king? When's the last time you sat Monday through Saturday marveling at this kind of king who lived the life perfectly for us so that we might experience the grace? Marvel at him. Marvel at this amazing king who is in the, in the face of rejection and rebellion, never stops pursuing us. Marvel at his tender patience. Marvel at his faithful provision. And marvel at this true king, King Jesus. But here's a second thing I want us to be able to do. Is to remember that it is his kindness that leads to repentance. It's his kindness. It's his slow patience. It's his provision for us. It's these things that actually lead us to repent of our rejection of him. These Israelites couldn't get it, right? They were at Mitzvah, the place where they experienced restoration, and yet here they completely relied on their own self-confidence in a physical king, like we do. 
elected politicians, presidents, whoever it might be. We put our confidence in these things instead of the true king. But when God is kind and patient and he forgives, it should lead us to be people who repent and turn from our wicked ways and a rebellion and a rejection of God and experience the mercy and kindness and grace that he lavishes us with. Let me share you with this story that I think beautifully pictures of how when we reject him, God's grace abounds. It's a story of a man named Ike Brown Sr. Ike being short for Isaac. But he experienced the worst thing any father could ever imagine. He got a phone call on Memorial Day. And on that phone call, the police said, your son is dead. Your son, Isaac Brown Jr., died playing video games with his best friend, being shot in the back of the head. And so for three painstaking years, Ike Sr. planned all of the different ways he wanted to kill this man that had killed his 21-year-old son. The revenge, the hatred, the scorn. He wanted this man not only locked up for life, but he wanted him to experience the death penalty. That's how much rage and anger Ike Sr. had. But something changed when this, when this man named Kreiner who had killed his son was found guilty. This is how he explained it. When the day came for court and I see him for the first time, I, can't, I tell you I just loved him. I can't explain it. I didn't have the feelings I thought I was going to have. I thought I was going to be angry. I thought I was going to hate him. thought I want him to die. But none of that. And he goes on to say not only did Ike forgive Kreiner for killing his son, but in an incredible change, Ike ended up adopting Kreiner as his own son. A man that killed his own son ended up adopting him. And as Kreiner, the one who had killed his son, described it, he said, as they shared conversations in prison, he began to not only understand and experience what a relationship with a father could be because he never had a biological father, but also what it meant to be a child, a son in a family relationship. This is the incredible story of the gospel for us. Though we kill the king of kings, though we reject him, he not only forgives us, but he says, you are mine. When the worst is known, love is still offered. And he says, you are my child. You are a son and daughter of the king. May we with confidence go to him because of his grace that abounds every single day of your life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the King of Kings. Though we deserve death that you took on and could not live the life that you lived perfectly, Lord, you not only forgive us, but you adopt us and call us your own. May we marvel in that. May, let, may that sit in our hearts so we might understand the wonder and the beauty and the magnificence of how you call us your own.
that we are princes. So Lord, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, as we feast upon the king's table, Lord, give us the grace that we need so that your kindness will lead to repentance and we would turn and live for you all the days of our life. Even just this week, may we do that by your grace. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.